This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. This evening, I've chosen to uh, focus on St. Thomas's thought on the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, before we get to that, however, uh, it's important for us to get one thing out of the way. As most people know, St. Thomas did not, did not believe that Mary was immaculately conceived. He did not hold for the immaculate conception. Now, I want to remind you that St. Thomas died in 1274, and that it wasn't until 1845 when blessed Pope Pius IX declared the dogma of the immaculate conception. So it's almost 600 years later. Whether the Blessed Mother was immaculately conceived was an open question in the 13th century, and Aquinas came down on the wrong side of history with his answer. To be fair uh, to the angelic doctor, however, when he writes on the matter in the Summa Theologiae, he uses very tentative language. Uh, he uses phraseology like, it seems not, or it seems unfitting that she would be immaculately conceived. The, the language of fittingness for St. Thomas is always tenuous. In fact, most good theology only gets to that point. Good theology uh, generally doesn't speak in definitive terms because we can't know God perfectly in this life, right? So fittingness is a word he uses when he knows he's postulating a theory, the conclusion of which cannot be stated definitively precisely because there's not enough data in Revelation to know. For example, he would say it is fitting that it is the second person of the Trinity who assumes a human nature rather than the first or third person of the persons of the Trinity because it's more fitting that the perfect image of God, the second person, be sent to repair the broken image of God in us. Yet this doesn't mean that it couldn't have been the Father who was incarnate or the Holy Spirit, but simply that it's more fitting that it was the Son, the Logos, or we might say it's more beautiful this way. In the same way, St. Thomas argued that it would not be fitting for the Blessed Mother to be immaculately conceived without the stain of original sin. And he argues this for basically two reasons. First, that such a conception such a conception would require the movement of grace. The rational soul is the proper recipient of grace, and therefore Mary's soul would have to exist in order to receive such a grace. He doesn't think that such a grace could be given before she comes into existence, which is to say that she could be given a grace until after her conception. Secondly, and probably more importantly, St. Thomas thought that if the Blessed Mother were immaculately conceived, it would be, um, and this is sort of one of the words, it would be somewhat derogatory to Jesus Christ, inasmuch as it would mean that she would have no need of his redemption, and Christ would no longer be the only sinless one. Of course, in defining the dogma in 1845, Blessed Pius IX dismissed that line of thought and declared that Mary was given the grace of the Immaculate Conception in view of the merits her son Jesus Christ would earn on the cross. According to Pius IX, 
The Immaculate Conception is itself a result of the redemption of Christ, preveniently, before it happens. Now, allow me to make a digression now uh, to Aquinas' thought on the state of Adam and Eve before the fall, which he calls original justice, and what he thinks original sin in you and me actually is. St. Thomas writes that original justice, the state in which Adam and Eve were created, consisted in man's being subject to God, to his lower powers, his body, his passions, being subject to his reason, and to, um, to his will being subject to always following God. It's only when man is in right relationship with God, when the mind is subject uh, to reason, when the passions are subject, uh, when, well, when, when the mind is subject to God, when the passions are subject to the mind, it's only when man is in right relationship with God that he's also right relationship interiorly with his passions. It's important to know, and the body is subjected to the soul. That's the third one. I knew I was forgetting. The, the body is subjected to the soul. So man's Reason being subject to God, the lower powers being subject to reason, and the body subject to the soul. It's important to know that this threefold submission is not a natural endowment in Aquinas' view. We, it's a gift of grace. In fact, the Catholic tradition has long held that Adam and Eve were endowed with grace and other gifts surpassing what is due to the human nature, what belongs to the human nature. The human species was created in grace. If you remember nothing else from tonight, remember that. The human species was created in grace and was intended to live in grace. Grace is not alien to who we are. In fact, it's what we were created to live, how we were created to live. Original justice was a grace. Here's what Aquinas writes. Now it is clear that such a subjection of the body to the soul and of the lower powers to reason was not from nature. Otherwise, it would have remained after sin. Because sin doesn't change our nature. And if that was natural, we, they would have sinned and we'd still have those, that threefold subjection. Hence, it's clear, he says, that the primitive subjection by virtue of which reason was subject to God was not merely a natural gift, but a supernatural endowment of grace. For it is not possible that the effect should be of greater efficiency than the cause. For St. Thomas, the first man and woman were created in grace, and this grace is the cause of an original righteousness in Adam and Eve, the state of original justice. The subjection of the lower powers to the higher powers are necessary, in, uh, are necessary for happiness in Aquinas' anthropology. He explains why in the uh, disputed questions on the nature of evil, which was written around the same time as the Summa. In addition to grace, we all need to be united with God. In the De Malo, St. Thomas also writes this. Human beings needed another supernatural help because of their composite nature, that we are body and soul, spirit and matter, right? For human beings are composed of soul and body and of an intellectual, the mind, and a sensory nature. Think of the passions. And if the body and the senses be left to their nature, 
They would burden and hinder the intellect from being able to freely attain the highest reaches of contemplation. Whenever we pray, whenever we try to study higher things, stomachs start growling, we start getting tired, we have all sorts of imaginative distractions. It's just the body hindering the soul from contemplating higher truths. And St. Thomas says, this help, this supernatural help was original justice by which the mind of human beings would be subject to God, that their powers and their very bodies would be completely subject to them. Nor would their reason impede them from being able to tend toward God. And that's because the reason is made for God. Original sin takes away this help of original justice. It takes away that grace. The situation of original justice was entirely unique. Our first parents were uniquely blessed with this endowed gift which perfected human nature on a natural level and eliminated all the deficiencies that go along with having this weak human nature, such as suffering and death. Our sensitive appetites, our passions, often pull us in various directions towards various goods, good things, but, and there are a lot of good things in this world that can distract us from our higher pursuits unless our lower appetites, our passion, are channeled by reason. Original justice was a grace keeping all of the human pursuits entirely directed and aligned with the pursuit of God. I say it again. The human species was created in grace. That's how we were always intended to be. St. Thomas is so strong on this that he says um, original justice is actually a good of our nature, which is to say that it's a defining characteristic of what it means to be human. The three goods of human nature for Aquinas are the principles of our nature, that we have an intellect, that we have a will, that we have a body and soul. Secondly, that we are inclined and created to pursue flourishing, excellence, virtue. We might say to pursue God. And the third, he says, is the gift of original justice. This means radically that we're not supposed to think of the human being apart from the gift of grace that was original justice. The human person today, you and I, when we commit mortal sin and, and lose sanctifying grace, that human, the human nature is, a de is derivative. It's not what the human nature was intended to be by, from God, from all of, all of eternity. The way, you, the way we live, you and I, plagued with original sin, is uh, contra intentionum. You and I are not, the human, are not human beings as the human species was created to be, as Adam and Eve originally were. That our emotions so easily run rampant and are disobedient to reason, and that we so often either let them run amok or need to clamp down on them with stoic severity, all of this is a result of original sin. Adam and Eve would never have had to do any of that. According to St. Thomas, original sin, he says, is an inordinate disposition, an inordinate character trait, if you will, arising from the destruction, this is a direct quote, the destruction of the harmony that original justice created. We were meant to have an internal harmony. Rather than living in harmony, with the nature perfecting grace that was original justice, 
In the fallen state, we live disintegrated lives. Uh, the inordinate disposition of the parts of the soul. St. Thomas is very clear. This is not a pure privation. The human nature remains. It just remains without that perfecting harmony that it was given at the beginning. He says original sin uh, cannot be like a pure deprivation or a pure privation because um, we still have, you know, body and soul, intellect and will. This hasn't been taken away by sin. But original justice, and this is important, the grace that God made Adam and Eve in was not due to them. It wasn't owed to them. It wasn't, God didn't have to do it. And so when they offended God, he rightly took that perfecting grace away. Since original justice was a grace that gave harmony to human nature in Eden, original sin is less a privation and more a simple continuation of human existence without that nature-perfecting grace. It's a loss that inevitably leads us to disorder. One 20th century Thomas put it this way, human nature with its powers as derived from Adam is now just itself, left to itself and without God's help. And that's how it is disordered. Original sin, and this is an important point to say, is not a positive inclination to moral evil that's been added on to our human nature after, after the fall of Adam and Eve. If original sin were, in fact, a positive or active inclination to evil, then God himself would be implicated in evil's cause as the one who inflicted this positive inclination to sin as a punishment for that first sin. Rather, original sin is a rupture of man's relationship with God and therefore a loss of his own integration, which is then what leads to further sins. We're, we're worse. I mean, we're not just discombobulated. We're worse than being discombobulated. There's nothing to prevent us from just flitting around to various goods, even illusory or false goods. Now, this has important consequences for Aquinas' view of fallen human nature. This disintegration is what properly is called the wounding of nature. St. Thomas says, now that our nature is wounded, all the powers of our soul are left destitute of their proper order, whereby they are naturally directed to virtue. This is what he means, and this is the word that he uses, and that was, is in the Catholic tradition. This is what he means by the fomus of sin, F-O-M-E-S, the fomus of sin. It's the static that now exists between our passions, our emotional life, and the higher parts of ourselves, our, our intellect pursuing truth, and our will pursuing love. The fomus is what weakens the mind and, and softens the will. This is why we're so easily distracted when we try to learn or when we pray. It's why we have problems with the body, that even after baptism, we still live with the fomus of sin, that we grow old and get arthritis and, you know, die and suffer. This is all part of uh, uh, original sin. It's the result of the disintegration of losing original justice. Now, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ had none of this in his humanity. His humanity is perfectly united to his divinity, and so there is no original sin in his humanity. 
He, came, he became a man like us in all things but sin. But that but sin includes a heck of a lot. A whole heck of a lot. For St. Thomas, while Christ could certainly feel pain and such in the body, his body, which is another interesting question, which is to say his passions, his passions were never but united to his reason and actually also united to his divinity. So Christ does not experience the fomus. Christ could certainly be tempted by external factors, and this is a debate, say, by Satan in the desert, but those exter any external temptations would never be internalized the way they are for you and me. He would never actually dwell on them. I mean, you can try to present him with things that you know, his humanity might find attractive, but he would, never, he would never dwell on them. And Scripture never suggests he countenanced the temptations of the devil. I mean, on the contrary, he always has, he has an immediate response each time, right? Um, he never internally considered for the slightest second any of those temptations. Now, as I said, St. Thomas believed that Mary was conceived with the stain of original sin, but he nonetheless maintains a very high view of the Blessed Mother, as all Dominicans generally do. We are her favorite order. <laughs> she told St. Dominic this. Aquinas believed that Mary was perfectly sanctified in the womb before her birth. He thought this sanctification was complete and entire given the angel's declaration to Mary that she is full of grace, a statement made by no other person in human made of no other person in human history. He writes this, it's reasonable to believe that Mary, who brought forth the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, received greater privileges of grace than all others. A little later, he provides an argument in more syllogistic terms. He says this, in every genus, the nearer a thing is to the principle, the greater the part which it has in the effect of that principle. Translation, the closer you are to a fire, the more you will participate in the effect of its heat. Continue with Aquinas. Now Christ is the principle of grace, authoritatively as to his Godhead, instrumentally as to his humanity. But the Blessed Virgin Mary was the nearest to Christ of all people in his humanity because he received his human nature from her. Therefore, it was due to her to receive a greater fullness of grace than anyone else. He also believes, as did many of the scholastic and church fathers, that St. John the Baptist and the prophet Jeremiah were sanctified in the womb based on scriptural assertions that John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb at the visitation and that God told Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. St. Thomas notes that the church has historically celebrated the nativity of St. John the Baptist, just as she has celebrated the nativity of Christ and the nativity of Mary, which suggests in his view that both Mary and John the Baptist were sanctified when they came from the womb. Otherwise, why would the church celebrate their births liturgically? They were born saints. 
The church celebrates the feast of those who are sanctified. Lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief. We pray as we believe. As a side note, he mentions in passing that while in his day some churches did in fact celebrate the conception of Mary, the church in Rome did not. But nonetheless, the church in Rome tolerated the fact that other churches were celebrating Mary's conception. One wonders if Rome had been celebrating the Immaculate Conception in the 13th century if Thomas's opinion might have been different on the matter. It doesn't particularly bother St. Thomas uh, that the scriptures do not mention Mary's perfect sanctification in the womb explicitly, just like it's not a problem for us today that there's no scriptural mention of her Immaculate Conception. That's because the church had, from the earliest centuries, for St. Thomas, celebrated the assumption of the Blessed Mother, body and soul, into heaven. And the celebration of the assumption or the dormition of Mary was rather widespread early on in both the East and the West. In fact, he cites St. Augustine, who wrote a treatise on the assumption of the Virgin, who St. Augustine says, quote, argues with reason since her body was assumed into heaven, and yet scripture does not relate this, so it may be reasonably argued that she was sanctified in the womb. If she's assumed into heaven, it means she had no sin. For St. Thomas, the sanctification in the womb had an effect on the Blessed Mother, she was full of grace, in a way that neither John the Baptist or Jeremiah experienced from their uh, sanctification in utero. Specifically, St. John the Baptist and Jeremiah were still open to personal sin after they were born. They could still sin. But St. Thomas is quite clear. So he doesn't believe in the Immaculate Conception, but he believes in this. He is quite clear that Mary was given a special, a special personal privilege of grace never to sin in her life. She'd not, she, she, and he doesn't think she ever even experienced the fomus of sin. So he doesn't hold for the Immaculate Conception, but he nonetheless are held that the Blessed Mother did not experience concupiscence or the fomus of sin because of the measure of grace that was given her in the womb. He says that the fomus in her were entirely fettered throughout her life. They had no effect on her. So she might have been walking around with original sin, but it never affected her in the way it does her. That's his, that was his belief. And he said that the moment she gave her fiat, when the incarnation happens, original sin was taken away from her entirely. That was his argument, his belief. So he held for, we might say, a two-step sanctification of the Blessed Mother. But we now know because of Pius IX, that the fomus were not just fettered in her and then taken away, but because of the Immaculate Conception, which is dogma, she never had the fomus because she never had original sin. In fact, one of the reasons that St. Thomas thinks that she had the fomus was because if she didn't, then he'd have to hold that the grace of her sanctification in the womb had the force of the grace of original justice. And he didn't think it was appropriate for someone else other than Christ to be walking around in the grace of original justice. And to be clear, even after the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ, when you and I are baptized, we still don't receive the grace of original justice, which is why we still have distractions and problems, 
right? Those original justice days are over. We're not going to get that back. Sorry. Not at least, not for now. Pius IX insists she doesn't have the fomus because she doesn't have anything of original sin. So with the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, everything that Aquinas concluded about how the Blessed Virgin Mary experienced life is actually still true. But lo and behold, it's even more wonderfully true than he thought. That not only did she not have the fomus, she never even had original sin. Mary must have lived in this world in I would, I mean, I'm, I'm not necessarily comfortable saying she lived in original justice, but something like the state of original justice. She was living in one way like Adam and Eve before the fall. But here's the thing. She was living in a better way than Adam and Eve. It's even better than that. She had better than Adam and Eve. She's not simply living like them before the fall. She's living in the fullness of grace, which means that unlike Adam and Eve, she is given the grace never actually to sin which Adam and Eve obviously were never given that grace, that gift. Right? Aquinas is very strong on this, and it's not only him who believes this. It's the church fathers. It's the perennial teaching of the church that Mary was given grace never to make, commit a personal sin. Here's what he says. The Blessed Virgin was chosen by God to be his mother. Therefore, there can be no doubt that God, by his grace, made her worthy of that office. According to the words spoken to her by the angel, you have found favor with God. But she would not have been worthy to be the mother of God if she had ever sinned. We must therefore confess simply that the Blessed Virgin committed no actual sin, neither mortal nor venial. Not even a venial sin. I mean, that's kind of huge. You know how common venial sins are, right? That's huge. Not even that. No cross thought, no, you know, no thought of judgment, nothing. Nothing going through her head, you know, that would be sinful. He cites St. Augustine as an authority here. Augustine, in his work on nature and grace, says this, quote, In the matter of sin, it is my wish to exclude absolutely all questions concerning the Holy Virgin Mary on account of the honor due to Christ. For since she conceived and brought forth him, who most certainly was guilty of no sin, we know that an abundance of grace was given her that she might be in every way the conqueror of sin. This was a common theme in the church fathers. And although it's not declared dogma, blessed Pius IX did include it in, the lines in, the, uh, uh, in, in his lines in his apostolic constitution when he did declare dogma, the Immaculate Conception. He did include an argument that can be, ma can be made that it is dog. He did include arguments that she never sinned. And, it, and an argument could be made that it is a dogma uh, that is part not of the extraordinary magisterium, which the, papal, the Pope can solemnly define, but that it's part of the ordinary and universal magisterium of the church, which is to say it's simply a truth that Mary has never sinned. This is a truth that's always been taught by the church and has never been objected to. The Blessed Mother is sinless her whole life due to the graces given by God on account of her Son, Jesus Christ. But Blessed Pius IX mentions not only that this is church teaching, um, he also points to the Council of Trent, which actually assumes this is the case. In its decree on, the ju on justification, the Council of Trent declared this, if anyone says that a man once justified can sin no more nor lose grace, 
And that therefore he that falls and sins was never truly justified to begin with. Or on the other hand, that he is able during his whole life to avoid all sins, even those that are venial. M dash. Except by a special privilege from God, as the church holds in regards to the blessed mother, let him be anathema. So if anyone says you can go through life without sinning, you know, heretic. Right? Except what we say about the Blessed Mother. She's got that privilege. The church only solemnly defines dogmas when truths of those dogmas are called into question, as were the truths of justification and grace during the Protestant Reformation. The truth of the Immaculate Conception was a disputed point, so the Pope settled the matter. But the truth that Mary was also given a special grace never to sin, mortally or venially, has never seriously been called into question by the church. And this is not because uh, she's some superwoman. It's because she was chosen to be the mother of God and she received that grace. Now, by reason of the graces that she's had, she has, we have to hold, speaking a little bit now about her freedom, that Mary's loves are completely, rightly, and properly ordered. Her mind is subject to God her passions to reason, and her body to her soul. Her loves are entirely, entirely aligned in the way that God always intended them to be for all of us. She's not simply Eve before the fall because, once again, she has something Eve never had. Mary has the extra privilege of grace never to sin, actually. Eve obviously didn't have that. In some ways, Eve was a horrible helpmate in this regard, right? So, for instance, when it comes to the Annunciation, St. Luke says Mary was troubled at what was said by the angel. St. Thomas says it's significant that she was troubled at what was said and not at the appearance of the angel. Because it's only the sinner who fears the divine. The soon as Adam and Eve eat the fruit, what do they do? They hide from God. Mary, full of grace, has no inappropriate sinful fear of the divine. She is not fearful of the angel. For St. Thomas, the trouble or doubt in Mary at what is said has nothing of sinfulness even in, in it, not even venial sinfulness. When you and I doubt what God might be calling us to do, it's at least a venial sin, right? This is not the case. And it's why we bring it to confession when we, when we have those doubts. This is not the case for the Blessed Mother. Rather, for St. Thomas, and he's following St. Basil the Great on this, the Blessed Mother's doubt was a doubt of wonder and amazement. Mary's love was so directed in grace to God, that she couldn't have said anything other than her fiat, let it be done unto me according to your word. Now, does this mean she's not free? Absolutely not. It's a painfully modern and erroneous view of human freedom to believe that freedom is simply the power or ability to choose this or to choose that, to choose between contraries, that it's simply the power of choice. That's not the classic understanding. That's not the Catholic understanding of freedom. 
saying that Mary was full of grace and could not sin and that she could not have uh, but given her fiat suggests to many modern ears that I'm saying she wasn't in fact free. On the contrary, freedom is made, the free will is made for God, to pursue God. That's what the power is for, to pursue the good and the supreme good of God. We tend to think that we're neutral with regard to God, that the human nature is neutral with regard to God. Well, there's God, I can choose him or not. No, the human nature was created for God. Our nature and our wills are not neutral with regard to God. It's actually inclined to God and made to pursue God and the good. And that's what freedom is made for. It's when we don't use the freedom in that way, that's what sin is. And that's why sin is a perversion. It's a perversion, and that's why sin is so radically bad, because it destroys what the power actually was made for, or it perverts it. Sin become, it's a perversion of freedom. What separates from the animals is not that we can choose or that we can even sin, but rather that we are the masters of the action, of the uh, master of our actions. We can know God. Choose him by his grace, pursue him, and know that our choices are pleasing to him and bringing us closer to him in his grace. And to love him in true freedom. I mean, in addition for St. Thomas, the Christian life is not simply a choice. It's not as though God simply reveals himself, lays out all the facts of who he is, so we've got that choice and then I maybe know. And then we just think, oh, yes, yes, I, I will believe. Yes, this, I've seen this data now. This is good. I, I believe now, right? For St. Thomas, we, can't, we need his help, his grace, because our will was made to be catalyzed and elevated by his grace to be united to him. God's initiative with us is always primary and first. We are not neutral with regard to him because he has not made us neutral. The Blessed Mother, in this, case, in this way, when sin becomes a perversion of freedom, it's easy to see or to believe that grace and God somehow oppress the human will or oppress human freedom. I cannot do what I want. I must do what God wants. But in fact, grace makes the human will or makes human freedom to be what they're created to be, free pursuits of God. So it's not simply that the Blessed Mother couldn't have said no to the Annunciation at the Annunciation. It's that she wouldn't have said no. Ever. Not in the least. Since Mary has no, not one ounce of sin, her will is not the least diluted or diverted from its true purpose, the pursuit of the highest good, which is God. Moreover, she is given the fullness of grace to actually know God, choose God, and not simply to pursue him. She's actually choosing him at all times. She is, for lack of a better word, and to co-opt a modern phrase, she is, in fact, the truly liberated woman because, because where there is grace, there is true freedom, and she is full of it, full of grace. Moreover, it's important to note, getting to her genius, that the incarnation was not, and this is often surprises people to say this, the incarnation was not a surprise to the Blessed Mother. Truly. Since sin was not part of her life, there was simply no static between her passions and her mind. There were no bodily issues with her highest prayers or her highest studies or her highest thoughts. 
She was not subject to random distractions in her thoughts and prayers, imagine. She would not have been physically overwhelmed with exhaustion when praying, reading, or studying if she were tired and could not pray or study because in her everything was properly ordered, she would have just gone to bed without guilt or shame. She's a virtuous woman, perfectly. So she would have known perfect prudence. Now is the time to rest. So that means Mary could study and learn with all the sin, without all the sinful effects you and I deal with, distractions, sinful thoughts, daydreams, her memory and her imagination would also have been more free and more pure. When she set herself to study, to know God more and more in Scripture, she would have been single-minded in that purpose. Discussing the Annunciation, one of Aquinas' objectors argues that the Blessed Mother didn't need the Annunciation because she already believed in Christ. This, by the way, is a common belief of the church fathers and scholastic theologians, that the patriarchs in the Old Testament had at least an implicit belief, were given a grace of implicit belief in Jesus Christ, right? St. Thomas thinks, for instance, that the prophet Isaiah knew all of his prophecies were about Jesus Christ, even if, like, we don't, and the apostles didn't, and the Jews didn't, right? So the, the objector says, because she would have believed in Christ, she didn't need the Annunciation. When he replies... St. Thomas accepts the premise as true. He says the Blessed Virgin did indeed believe explicitly in a future incarnation. And I don't know how many of the church fathers held this view, but I know for certain St. Ambrose and St. Augustine also believed this, that she was not surprised. So it's not unique to St. Thomas, but it makes sense that the Virgin Mary would have figured out God's intention to become incarnate simply by reading the prophecies and wisdom literature of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. I mean, throughout the Gospels, the evangelists are always pointing out ways that Christ fulfills prophecies. He did this or that to fulfill what Isaiah the prophet said or what the prophet Jeremiah said. Right? They saw it after the fact because they weren't as smart as she was because they, did, they had the effects of original sin, Right? So the church very quickly came to understand that all the prophecies in the Old Testament are about Christ. But this was after the fact. The Blessed Mother, however, it's reasonable to believe that she could read the prophecies and she could understand them rightly. So she knew the incarnation was going to happen. What she did not know and what she never would have presumed and St. Thomas is clear on this, because even though she's full of grace, fully free, clearly a genius, not experiencing life like anybody else around her, she's also incredibly humble. She has no pride of life. So what she would never have presumed is that it would be she herself to whom this would happen. She never would have thought that she was going to be the mother of God even though she knew that there would be a mother of God. St. Thomas says this, this is a direct quote. He says, being humble, she did not think such high things about herself. She wasn't walking around thinking, I'm full of grace. And so the Annunciation, St. Thomas says, was for her an instruction, not that the incarnation was going to happen, but, the fact, but on the fact that it was going to be her 
who would be the mother of God, she herself. Elsewhere in the Summa, Aquinas says the blessed, of, of the Blessed Mother being stunned at the Annunciation, because St. Luke says she's stunned, you know. He says this, it's because to a humble mind, nothing is more astonishing than to hear about its own greatness. She was a humble genius throughout her life. She's a genius because of the grace given to her, because she has the fullness of the seven gifts of the spirit, the fullness of the theological virtues, the infused moral virtues, because her body and soul are perfectly united and aligned, being directed to God. That she is without sin, uh, and, that she, and that she does not live with concupiscence and the fullness of sin, means in the end that she must also have been radiantly beautiful. I mean, the, all the visions of Mary now, the apparitions, uh, she's, everyone says she's beautiful, but that's obvious. She's in the beatific vision. She should be, if we're not all beautiful in the beatific vision, there's a problem, right? <laughs> but he's, he means while she's on earth, she must have been stunningly, radiantly beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. Because Aquinas understands that the human person is a composite of body and soul. We talked about this when I was here last spring that there are two principles of one person. We're not Cartesian dualists. For St. Thomas, the soul is not the ghost in the machine. The soul is what makes the body to be what it is. And the soul itself is a spiritual substance that's meant to be in the body, to be united to the body. I shouldn't say in, to be united to the body. In fact, for St. Thomas, you know, the material always exists within the form, within the spiritual. Aquinas is so strong on this that he thinks the body and soul mutually implicate each other. The soul depends on the body, on the senses for knowledge, but also for movement, and the soul affects the body. It's all the nonverbals that are written on, on the body. I think I mentioned maybe in last spring that even in his treatise on the angels, he says that angels can't read the soul, but they can read the body. And they're just really good at reading the nonverbals. That's my translation of him, right? Angels are really good at reading the nonverbals of the body. Aquinas is so strong on the natural unity of the body and soul that he believes after we die and we are God willing in the beatific vision without our bodies before the resurrection of the dead, we're not really persons because we don't, the soul retains its ordering to the body. It wants the body. Now, this is made up for by being in the beatific vision, but it's not until the resurrection of the dead that we are once again reunited. This is an important Christian truth. And for St. Thomas, the body is glorified in its union with the glorified soul. It's because of the grace of the beatific vision of the soul that necessarily radiates from the soul into the body that makes the body fit or proportioned to the beatific vision, makes it glorified. The Blessed Mother did not have the beatific vision in her life as she does now. Nonetheless, she has the fullness of grace. And this necessarily radiates to her body perfectly because she has no fullness, no original sin. Right? Which means she had, as I say, to be physically very beautiful, stunningly gorgeous, which of course raises all sorts of questions about all the sinners in her life. And I think especially about the men in her life. 
St. Thomas has a wonderful thought about this. And as far as I can tell, he only writes this in one place. It's in his very first work, his commentary on St. Peter Lombard's sentences. Here's what he says, direct quote. In the Blessed Virgin, the inclination of the fomus was wholly taken away, both as to venial sin and as to mortal sin. And what is greater, sanctifying grace not only repressed illicit desires in her, but also had efficacy in others. Such that, although she was physically beautiful, no man was ever able to covet her. So already in life, she's a cause of grace and joy in the people around her. Imagine what it must have been like when she went out in public to the market and men would have definitively, they would have noticed her. They would have noticed her beauty. But for the life of them, could not bring themselves to lust after her or to desire her in any impure way. All they could do was behold how beautiful she was in a most perfect and pure way because of the grace overflowing from her. Imagine, like, here comes that beautiful girl again. I just want to adore her. I'm sure whenever she walked into any room or into the market, every grace, everybody noticed her, but because of the grace in her, there was never any hint of jealousy in other women or any hint of lust or domination in the men. Her beauty became an avenue of grace to those around her. And she didn't have pride of life, so she didn't contemplate her own beauty. She had no vanity. Right? Note, too, that although he was a just man, St. Joseph himself would have benefited from this sort of grace. And also the beloved disciple, who would likely lived with the Blessed Mother much longer than St. Joseph ever did. Nothing the Blessed Mother does is by sheer willpower or discipline or according to her own merit. Everything she is, everything that she does is because of the grace of God at work in her for the sake of becoming the mother of God incarnate and then being the mother of God incarnate. Come to find out, this is where I'll conclude, this is exactly what God wants for every one of us to live our human existence fully free in the fullness of his grace. Now, of course, there are all sorts of questions. Why didn't God do what he did for the Blessed Mother to Adam, for Adam and Eve? Why doesn't he do it for you or for me, what he did for her? Why didn't he make a world where we would not sin but still be free? All these he certainly could have done. And those are important and fascinating questions. Saints like Augustine and Aquinas grope for answers to those kinds of questions. But those questions aside, the fact remains is this. When we think about the human race, we should not first think of Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, as the paradigm. The Blessed Mother is the paradigm. She is what God always intended the human race to be. Always. Free in grace fully alive in the love of God, genius in thought but humble of mind, and absolutely, absolutely beautiful in grace-filled ways. Thank you.